<laughs> and welcome. It doesn't to, get old for me. For you, I think that's a very. <laughs> for you is doing a lot of lifting in that sentence. Yeah, but I'm really only concerned with that. So, mm, so welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice. That's Catherine Rubino. We're editors at Above the Law, and we bring you this podcast every week where we round up some of our thoughts on some of the bigger stories of the week in the legal industry. How have you been? Uh, pretty good. You pretty know, good. spring has largely sprung. Yeah. It feels like uh, associate bonuses are once again in the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't need any of that, any of your act. Any of what? For our listeners, Joe is giving me a lot of rolling of his eyes. I know we've talked about bonuses ad nauseum on this podcast as well as on our web- website, but you know it is a pretty big subject. And yeah, I mean that the newer development is not a surprising one, but it's that not everybody is. Uh, I, okay, I thought that was going to be a whole category. I did too, and I thought that's what you were trying to signal me to do. No, no. See, you're just really bad at this whole <sighs> this whole taking direction and signaling thing. No, no, no. Well, because you just are like looking at me weird. No, see, so for the previous, you know, three or so odd years that we've done this together, there's an we've introduction where it's not years. one of the topics. We've not done this for three years. No, fair enough. Okay. Anyway, spring has sprung. I'm fully vaccinated, and I'm ready to go out. Excellent. Is well, that what the kind of stuff you want to talk about now? Not necessarily, but I mean, I just figured it would be anything that was not, you know, the subject that we have fully worked out that was going to be fleshed out as a topic down the road, you know? <sighs> See, I, I think, I think our, hopefully our audio engineer can catch that sound. Uh, <laughs> something was wrong with the system, I think. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, okay. So well, how are cool. you doing these days? You know, not terribly been a busy busy uh week for me i've got a lot of a lot of separate jobs going on at once and it's somewhat stressful i feel mm. like i mean look I, I think like a lot of people and i you know this is going out to the law students out there who feel this i think almost more into so the than year lawyers. kind of yeah well no it's just academic it's, year yeah end of the academic year sort of for them but the the starting and stopping on a wholly unrelated set of tasks mm-hmm. is really stressful uh, for, for a lot of folks. And that's where I am. I, I'm, you know, I have some other jobs. I do this as well as some consulting and stuff. And I run uh, like I'm a treasurer for a nonprofit and stuff like that. And I mm. just have tasks built up for all of them. And the mental work of shutting down work on law to do accounting to shut that down to do work on my so you're, consulting. So you're bad at multitasking. Is, it, it's not so much yeah. multitasking, which obviously that is that is part of it too, but it's the hmm. it's more than just multitasking. It's whole multi-literature basing. It's like the, <laughs> the whole set of things that you do with your head are completely different mm-hmm. because it's just like doing a bunch of spreadsheet math is not my legal writing work and so on. So, you know, that's been very stressful. So that's all I was saying. Fair enough. Fair you know. enough. It's hard for me to be stressed out with the weather being as delightfully springy as it is, but I feel you. You yeah. have to kind of switch gears, and that's rough for you. And, and I mean, I guess I shouldn't just say that it's law students who deal with this. I, I, I guess there are at big law firms. That's not you know that is a thing. Well, you you basically case, do your but, thing. But yeah. if you're if case to case, but that's still. Yeah you know, your skill set. But like smaller law firms don't have, they also have to switch hats a lot because, you know, it makes me think, 
You went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Enjoy peace of mind with one-click reconciliation, automated transaction alerts, and real-time bank data. Visit trustnota.com slash legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. So are you actually stressed out about this stuff, or is it just an elaborate setup for the ad read? No, I, I, I am. I am. It is it it is one of those things where I, I finish a day's worth of ah. writing and think, oh, no, now I have to switch all my gears over to this other thing. And I'll be doing that for five minutes, and then a bonus alert will come in. And it's like, oh, no, I got to stop and switch back to, you know, so, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's true, though, has been true for you for a while, you know? You, yeah, you, no, it, I mean, it is. It's just, yeah. it's just a lot of things happened at once, you mm. know, and that's all. I'm not looking for pity on it. I was just oh, making I conversation. Was, I wasn't trying to pity you. I was trying that's to judge fair. you. I, didn't sen- I was trying to judge you. I didn't sense any uh, care and concern. Uh, <laughs> so, what, well, what is new uh, this week? I guess the biggest, like, substantive news story is that, well, not the biggest substantive news story, but the biggest substantive news story about subjects that we we cover routinely here is that there's a, now a court packing bill that exists mm. yeah. in the world. It's more than just uh, Ellie's rantings online. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there, there's an... There's a bill out there. Uh, that so uh, was, you've mm-hmm. been pretty vocal that you don't think it's a great idea to court pack because there's just a concern that then Republicans, when they're in control, will turn around and do something even worse, right? Well, I, well, twofold. So if I can finish up on the introduction of the things. So Nadler and Markey have, uh, in the House and Senate, have proposed a new bill that would move the number of Supreme Court justices from 9 to 13. Uh, this would correspond conveniently, and I'm sure entirely accidentally, into (laughs) making the ideological balance of the court move from being a 6-3 conservative majority to a 7-6 liberals to progressive majority. Mm -hmm. So uh, purely coincidental, I'm sure. Absolutely coincidental. Yeah, so I I have generally been against it, and there is a part of it that is it could lead to the the retaliation. I mean, mm-hmm. I I often use the example of the classic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode that ends with they'll just keep making bigger sticks with bigger nails in them until one day they build one that will destroy them all. Like I think you do this next time around, they do the exact mm-hmm. number it takes to move it back the other way. Yada yada, it keeps going. But I'm actually even less concerned than the tit for tat of it going on forever than I am the just the delegitimization of the court that takes place when every election ends with another expansion to add more people. Well, query whether or not some of the delegitimization has already occurred and is yeah. occurring in the status quo because of sure. sort of the the way that the Republicans have flip-flopped on when you can and cannot appoint Supreme Court justices. You know, I think that that sort of the hypocrisy between the Gorsuch nomination and the, the lack of a Merrick Garland nomination and Amy covid Barrett you know, really kind of put a lot of that delegitimization already on the table. Sure. This is not solvency for that problem. No, no, yeah. no, no. It's but, like, but, but it's a, it's a uniqueness claim, right? Right. Well, that if, if the court is already delegitimized, what does it matter? I think the problem is that this harm here is what I would call linear, uh, <laughs> and it just keeps getting worse. And it just the mere fact that there is one side that has already engaged in some manner of delegitimization mm-hmm. is not a reason to blow up the whole organization, I think. And it's also, and we've talked about this on the show, not you and I, but when Ellie was still uh, hosting this show with me, that you know, back in the glory days. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
bringing it. Yeah, yeah. You, you just want to talk by yourself for the next mm. 20 minutes or so? So, no? an, okay. anyway, but no, back, back then we used to have the conversation. I'd say that when he would argue for these sorts of reforms, I would say, look, the problem is it's about victory conditions. Sure. And some games, different players have different things that constitute a victory for them, and that makes strategizing more difficult. Mm -hmm. For the Republicans who have built at least as far back as the Goldwater-Reagan era, have built their ideology around the idea that when the government doesn't function, that's good. It proves their point. It mm -hmm. proves the government's bad. And so they don't have as much of an interest in the government working, whereas Democrats, everything they do requires a fundamental belief and trust by the public that the government is able to do its job. So when you're talking about delegitimizing institutions, one side has no problem doing that because it helps their victory condition and the other Should. does. And, and so that's why the retaliation of, well, then we'll just break the institution in our direction is fundamentally flawed because it, it just creates a situation where the Democrats delegitimize themselves, which is a problem because Republicans can continue to be hypocritical forever because it works to their advantage, whereas Democrats can't. But I think the other kind of counter to that, right, is that Republicans have uh, successfully fundraised and kind of uh, campaigned on the notion of the Supreme Court, right, mm -hmm. more effectively than the Dems have, frankly. Sure. Uh, and so if it's a question about delegitimizing the only thing or one of the big factors in getting them elected, perhaps that creates more problems for the, the Republicans than for Democrats. Well, no, I mean, it, it, it just underscores their argument to their voters that the Supreme Court is the most important thing. And the only answer is to elect us because the Democrats are trying to blow it up. I mean, that will be the pitch. And we can see that that pitch is, while in most parts of the country, it seems a little esoteric to talk about the Supreme Court. We saw that especially what happened in Maine, where mm -hmm. you had uh, Susan Collins, who is the second least popular senator in the country right now, but still winning the reelection, even though they were polling terribly at the beginning of it, on a campaign that largely doubled down on, they'll court pack if you don't vote for her. And I think there are a few seats that really locked into this. And we see that it can be successful because the public generally is not pleased with the idea of packing. Our argument has historically been around here. Um, well, I guess not around here because Ellie was here. But my argument has been, and the argument shared by nonpartisan organizations like Fix the Court, that the answer is some version of Lawrence Tribe's proposal to create an active panel Supreme Court and have people stagger off of it. Term limits. Term, basically term limits. Right. Uh, not that they would cease to be justices or because judges. Because the would, Constitution is a thing. Well, sort of. Uh, it's questionable whether the Constitution really says what people think it does when it says good behavior. But assuming it is that meaning, mm -hmm. the argument would be that after a certain period, you would leave the active duty Supreme Court. You would still be around to fill in. Uh, you would still get paid. You would still be able to ride circuit and do all those sorts of jobs. But the active panel of the Supreme Court would continue to turn over. Every two years, one person would leave and a new person would come in, and that would create a world in which you could be an 18-year term on the active court, still stays at nine, fixes a lot of these problems, returns the court to being something where there's lower stakes for every individual nomination, have more of a balance that it's a lagging indicator of what the electorate believes, as opposed to somebody getting in and three people happening to croak at the same time. Another problem of just adding 
a bunch of people in one fell swoop, of course, is you're just setting up a situation where in a decade and a half that all four of those new justices are all going to be up at the same time, and who knows who's in office at that point, which is another problem with just wholesale adding seats in one swoop. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but that's what we've historically thought. Although I wrote an article last week where I think actually this might not be the worst proposal to bring up at this point. I think while it has been damaging in the past for Democrats to talk about court packing, this could actually be one of those rare instances where doing so could be a valuable strategic measure because it kind of sets, you know, you don't want to negotiate against yourself. You set up the idea that this is a hard line position and maybe it makes a more reasonable one like staggered sure, negotiations. You, you don't yeah. come in with your, you know, walk away yeah. offer. You and know? It, might, it might set up a situation where people are more willing to take the more reasonable and useful offer. So I don't know. It, it, it's something that we're going to monitor and see what happens with it. Obviously, I don't think it's going to go anywhere given mm-hmm. the constitution of the Senate and all, but it's an interesting idea that could have some strategic value and maybe, making it more likely that people cross over for something else. Sure, but the other part of that, of course, is that, you know, we kind of have a clock going to the next Senate election where Mm -hmm. the Democrats might lose their slim majority, right? So if there's things that need to get done that are considered, you know, must-dos, you know, they're— Yeah, but I mean, this isn't doable now. Uh, Like, putting aside aside the filibuster, there are two Democrats who won't do it now. Right. But it is the sort of situation where if this were the the goalpost and you compromised on a term limit bill, Mm -hmm. that would be valuable. And it may not be valuable for— the short-term liberal interests, but it would be more valuable for the country as a whole to have a reasonable, ordered system that staggers people and makes it a link. I keep using the term lagging indicator, but I mean, that's what you really want, is you want it to be, hey, 18 years ago, we elected this person and their views are reflected, but it doesn't mean they get to hold their hand on the till of the Constitution for 30 years. Or as long as science will allow. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And it also opens the door to actually qualified people who aren't 46 years old and just like the youngest person someone can find so that maybe we can hold this seat for 40 years. Like we'll go back to a world mm-hmm. in which actually competent people yeah. might Instead get nominated. Instead of having to use actuarial calendars to be yeah. like, oh, this person is more likely to live because, yeah. Yeah. Which is a weird way to pick jurists. It is. Yeah, no, and not not a not a great way of doing anything. Anyway, so let's transition off of this. We'll make the uh, transition be about administrative tasks, you know, because that's one of the jobs of the chief justice here. That's the best I have on that. Uh, Let's hear from our friends at Lexicon. Here's a message just for the attorneys out there. So you passed the bar, joined a firm, or even built your own. Now are you finding out that you're doing more administration than actual law practice? Lexicon can help. Lexicon is a legal services and technology provider with over a decade of experience streamlining administrative tasks like timekeeping, HR, billing, client intake, and more. So you can focus on maximizing billable hours and increasing client satisfaction. Call 855-4-LEXICON or visit lexiconservices.com go to learn more. All right, so uh, how much do big law partners bill? Uh, how many hours do they bill? I meant I meant money. Oh, how, how much do they charge for the hour? Um, up until about a week ago, I would have said $1,800, $1,900 is what yeah. I would say the top of the market was. So, what, so since then, what has happened that uh, has led us to believe it might be more? 
Eric Holder's billing rate became public. Okay, so Eric Holder, a former attorney general, he was now at Covington Burling. His uh, billing rate became public uh, as part of, uh, you know, sometimes these things happen. For, public yeah. disclosures happen. Uh, it actually happens a lot, not that his didn't come through this process, but it happens a lot at the change of administrations because you mm-hmm. start getting federal forms. Uh, right, of this people is how much I made and billed yeah. and whatever. So he billed uh, $22.95 an hour. That's a lot of money. It's a decent amount, and it's uh, not the full amount that right. he charges. Right, there was a part of the arrangement of the deal or the case that became public was that there was actually a ten percent discount. So yeah, so yeah. more than twenty three hundred dollars yeah. an hour. That seems okay. So so as I had said previous to this, there was some information, public information, that the top big law partner rates were you know in the in the high thousand dollars, you know, eight seventeen to nineteen hundred dollars an hour. And really it's not that much of a jump to go from nineteen hundred to twenty three hundred, right? That's not a giant amount of difference when you're talking about the thousands, but I do think that there's a crazy psychological difference between some a number that starts with the one and one that starts with the two. Yeah. The same way that, you know, ten years ago there was a big deal from when the partnership when top partners were finally billing over the thousand dollar mark, right? There was a giant controversy about the difference between a $900 bill and an $1,100 bill. Yeah. You know. I mean, and, and inflation exists, I sure. suppose, sure. Uh, although it's very, very small. I feel as though this isn't all that bad. Uh, I think that... I don't think it's bad. I think it's, first of all, I think it's interesting to note what the top of the market will bear. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting to see also the kinds of law firms that, or the kinds of lawyers that can really dictate this very top number, even if there is some sort of a psychological distinction between, you know, over 2,000 and under 2,000. I think that there's one aspect of this from my perspective, and, and Look, there are there are issues with revolving door between public and private that are problematic. Sure. Uh, we write a lot about the revolving door projects work on this. That said, I feel as though one reason why someone like Eric Holder can bill what he bills is when you think about the law firm industrial model, a lot of money gets generated by leveraging associate efforts. Uh, mm-hmm. that you build them out less but there's more of them doing a lot more work. And so the pyramid works out that the partner isn't billing quite as much, but is collecting more because they're leveraging a bunch of associates. That said, I feel like to me, and maybe I'm wrong, I haven't seen you know what Eric Holder works on, I feel as though Eric Holder doesn't get hired for the sort of matters that lend themselves to a ton of leverage. I don't think he's running a run-of-the-mill civil trial that has 30 associates uh, running around on it. I feel as though people are calling Eric Holder to deliver some kind of expert opinion on criminal matters that are complex, but also ones where it's mostly he's going to be the one who calls up the DOJ and argues with them and so on. I'm sure there are associates, people helping him collect mm-hmm. his materials, but I don't think it's like a 20, 30 associate army that he's at the top of. But, it's probably a one-on-one, maybe one-on-two kind of a job. So, But doesn't that kind of mitigate the other way, saying that because uh, Eric Holder is doing so the bulk of the work on these matters that the higher rate is more egregious because there's more hours that He's sort of billing. So, I mean, I guess there's that, but I, I'm not even necessarily saying that there's more hours as a as a cumulative thing mm. either. I think, though, that his specialized knowledge is getting rewarded with this higher rate and the fact that he can't 
be pushing work down on as many other people, at least not as much to get the, like, that kind of big leverage advantage. Yeah, that makes some sense to me. I mean, I don't know. Listen, I have written in defense of big law billing rates on numerous occasions in the past. Mm-hmm. There was a big kerfuffle when I think Barbara Jones's billing rate became public. Oh, she bills over a thousand dollars an hour, and I was like, "That's what. That's what. That's fair. That is a fair market rate for her knowledge for big law partners in the thousand dollar range." I thought was very fair, and and I even having written that numerous times in the past and believing that, you know, that's kind of what the market bears, seeing that number was, it was a bit of a shock even for me. You know, so, oh, there you go. Yeah. Good Do, job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah no, it, it is it is shocking. But again, I like, I don't know. I feel as though this is something that is probably more unique. Mm-hmm. I don't think that well, there are this, even right very well- In terms of specialized knowledge, for yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think there are even very important and well-known and- trusted bet the company litigators who are not billing at this level because the sort of, the, the model doesn't work the way where they need to they can bill 1600 an hour and bill very few hours themselves because they're farming it out to associates who are billing $600 an hour and billing a crazy ton and the partner is only being involved for very high level intervention but the other part of that, of course, is that now that this billing rate has become public, it's sort of tacit permission amongst the industry yeah, that yeah. if you have the people that you think are on that level, it's okay to to kind of cross that Rubicon of $2,000. Yeah. No, I, I think that's very true. And, you know, it's – I mean, there's one – that's one way to make money uh, is to just <laughs> keep raising your rates. I mean, law firm demand has been down for several – well, not down. It has been barely increasing for many years. Sure. And people have been making more money by uh, raising rates. And, you know, hey, that's one way to do it. And it's one way if you were trying to answer the question, how have law firms weathered previous economic downturns and come out stronger on the other side? LexisNexis Interaction has released an in-depth global research report confronting the 2020 downturn, lessons learned during previous economic crises. Download your free copy at interaction.com slash like a lawyer to see tips, strategies, plans, and statistics from leaders who have been through this before and how they've reached success again. I actually think the tone of your voice changes slightly when you're excited about your intro to the ad read. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I've just been listening to you read a lot of ads in my life, but yeah, it Mm. feels obvious. Fair enough. All right. That said, uh, partners making a lot more money, uh, Mm -hmm. associates making big bonuses. uh, Who isn't? As I sort of previewed earlier- (laughs) Yeah. Not everyone is getting the the big special bonuses that we've been writing about. Oh, really? About. Huh. Oh, really? <laughs> Tell us a, about that. You're such a jerk. Uh, <laughs> it will, well, I'm, of course, talking about counsel. It's sort of that, you know, in-between space between associates and partnership, and oftentimes they get left out of the bonus structure. We wrote about some bonuses uh, last the end of last week uh, at King and & Spaulding, and uh, no mention of what counsel will be getting, if anything, at all. And we heard from some tipsters at the firm, and this I think counsel are rightly annoyed that they have not received word what, if any, special bonuses they're going to get. You know, this puts counsel in an awkward position where they're oftentimes making less money than the associates that they are managing. I don't think you want to put folks in that position. Yeah. The council job is a a weird mm-hmm. a weird hybrid job. I feel as though it is in some ways it's kind of the best and worst of all possible worlds. The golden handcuffs 
analogy is very apt when it comes to counsel because you are making more money than associates as a general matter, not necessarily the people in their eighth year who are getting the giant bonus, but you're mostly making more money than associates. That said, you're just kind of barely making more money than associates. Now, on the other hand, those associates are largely getting weeded out over the years, but you've made it to a point where the firm has determined that your services are valuable enough that, that you get to that's stay. that's what makes it more bizarre, yeah. right? Like a firm has affirmatively said, you are valuable to our business, mm-hmm. right? Because listen, a lot of firms do an up and out kind of model. If you're not up for partnership, then you're out the door, you know? But, mm-hmm. but this is folks that say, no, you are valuable. You have some knowledge, some skills that either you'll be up for partnership in a, just a few more years or, you know, you, you are good at what you do and we don't want to lose that valuable talent. Yeah but we're not going to pay you. Right. Well, and part of it is that you've kind of shown, by taking that job, you've also shown that you're kind of of pot committed to, I'm willing to work at this rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a problem too for folks who take that gig because you're basically saying in those seventh and eighth years when it looks, when it's becoming clear to you, you're probably not going to become partner, that you're you're willing to stay here because you think it's okay to get paid at that lower rate, and they now have that information. And plenty of people become partners out of the councilship ranks. Yes, of course, some yeah. do, and and so some of it is you're cool with being strung along like that. But yeah, it, it's a it's a awkward place I mean, to be. I think the other a limbo. The, the other of. part of it, I think, is sort of the lack of transparency on council rates and council salaries mm-hmm. and council bonuses. Obviously, transparency is kind of my mantra when we're talking about big law. It's something I talk about all the time. But, you know, it's really easy to look at a chart and say, oh, I'm a third year. How am I, much am I making at big law firm one versus big law firm 42? And, right. and if they're the same levels, feel like they're the same kind of a firm. But because there's sort of this veil of secrecy around, you know, people who are off the chart, meaning like off the grid of, you know, associate, yeah. associates, years, then who knows? And sometimes that means, you know, a council is making some less than a 2014 graduate. And that's kind of crappy too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and the the problem that I have foreseen for a while, and I'm starting to see it happen because a lot of these council, which used, what used to be called council and really did signify, hey, this is somebody probably in a niche non-book building practice, Mm -hmm. but that is necessary. And we treasure them and give them something that's not quite a partner, but it's not what, but it's better than associates. It's what that used to be. And it has kind of morphed into this acceptance of the income partner Mm -hmm. where you're a partner who is not partaking of the big bucks, but you also have a title, but a title that you know ultimately doesn't really matter much. Like if you're ever going to try to move somewhere, they're going to ask what what's going on with you financially, uh, what your book of business is before. They're not just going to say, oh, it has the word partner. I feel like I'm fine. And so that even further traps people in a place where they can't necessarily leverage what they do into a different job. And then, you know, it's easy to take advantage of them. And it Obviously, we all should be taken advantage of with 300,000 plus salaries, but sure. still in relative to the industry that they're in. And again, you know, it's not just relative to the industry. It's it's literally relative to others working below them. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, yeah. to me, that's the biggest – that feels more like a slap in the face than just, you know, oh, well, you, we're stringing you along for an unclear number of years and the promise that maybe one day you'll make partner. Right? I think that saying that, like, 
oh, we value, you have a higher title, you are more important, and yet paying you less yeah. is real problem. And, 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 you know, who knows? Council are, even in best case scenarios, are dealt with on an individualized basis, so there's really no market to compare and contrast, and perhaps even at King & Spalding, council will get bigger bonuses that will make up this difference. So fingers crossed for all the folks that are kind of in this in-between position. But I definitely think yeah, it's I don't a, think it's just that firm either. I, it's definitely yeah. not just that firm. That was just the most recent one that has come to our attention. Yeah. For sure, not the only firm. But, you know, and, and perhaps I hope all of them get the payday that, that they deserve. But yeah. calling attention to it, I think, is also part of the process. Yeah. No, I think that's true. You know who else calls attention to things like this? Above the Law, which you oh. should be reading. <laughs> and also, you should be subscribing to the podcast that we do, which is not only this one, but also the Jabot, which Catherine hosts about diversity in the law. And I am also a participant in the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundup, as we call it, as well as the Clubhouse Legal Tech Trending News uh, conversation, uh, you know, testing out that new Clubhouse thing. I'm sure they've already stolen all my data, so there's nothing else for them to get. Yeah. Uh, and also all the other offerings that we aren't involved with, with the Legal Talk Network, you can check out too. Uh, you should be giving our podcasts reviews, uh, stars, as well as write something about them. It helps them move up the algorithm. Social media, uh, we're both on. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One, uh, the numeral one, as we always uh, describe it. You should check out our sponsors, uh, Nota, powered by M&T Bank, uh, Lexicon, as well as LexisNexis interaction and their 2020 downturn report as well as other reports and with all of that said i can see Catherine's like super eager to say the last thing because she wants to be done but i'm gonna keep stringing this out so that there's no like i'm a counsel at a big law firm you're yeah, exactly. stringing me along i am yeah Peace. all right bye